Let's pray. Lord God, you are a God of power. And I pray that this morning I might speak not in my strength, but with your power. Open our eyes afresh to see your greatness. And we pray that your spirit among us might help us to respond to your word and to your call on our lives. Amen. Up until the end of the summer, I taught a year two class. And part of the curriculum involved teaching the children about the Jewish festival of the Passover. And I would always begin my teaching by showing them a video of Moses and the Ten Plagues. The children would watch fascinated as Pharaoh stood with his hands on his hips, refusing to let the people of Israel go. They would watch the Nile being turned to blood, the people's houses being overrun by frogs, their bodies being plagued by biting insects. But as I sat there and watched it, I always felt slightly uncomfortable. There was always a question at the back of my mind. The children I was teaching, on the whole, knew nothing about God. And I would be asking myself, what am I teaching these children about God? I'm showing them an angry God who punishes people, who causes, frankly, quite horrible things to happen to them. I wonder if, as you listen to Barbara reading this morning, similar questions crept through your mind. Is this story relevant to Christians today? Is this the same loving God that we meet in the New Testament? So this morning, I want to see if we can unpack what this story teaches us, firstly, about God, and secondly, about our relationship with him. First of all, I think it does indeed teach us that God punishes sin. If you think back to the early chapters of Exodus, you'll probably remember the story where Pharaoh has the firstborn boys of Israel killed by drowning them in the Nile. The Egyptians had sinned against the Israelites. The Israelites were slaves. Their life was hard. They were treated ruthlessly. Everything was suffering and misery. If you think of the story we had a few weeks ago, after Moses asked Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, they have to make the same number of bricks, but they're not given the straw to make them with. And Pharaoh himself acts in complete defiance to God. He sets himself up against God. At the start of chapter 5, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Time and time again, he refuses to yield to God. So God's judgment on the Egyptians isn't a random act in a moment of anger. 
It's the just response of a holy God to Egypt's sin. Yet, in the midst of God's judgment, we also see his patience. God doesn't plunge in with the harshest plague first. Pharaoh had nine warnings before in the final plague the firstborn sons of Egypt are killed. Did the Israelites have any warning before their firstborn sons were drowned at Pharaoh's command? No, they didn't. And each plague makes their life progressively harder than the one before. If you think about it, the first plague affects the Nile. It makes their lives uncomfortable, but the the Nile is out there. The next plague comes right into their homes. Can you imagine what it would be like to have frogs in your bed, frogs in your oven, frogs in your pots and pans, frogs all over you? I used to teach frog class and the children would take home a smiley, cuddly frog each weekend. These aren't smiley, cuddly frogs. They're real, they're slimy, and when they died, their bodies stank. The next plague doesn't just affect their homes, it makes their bodies uncomfortable. They are bitten all over by insects. We don't know from the translation whether they're gnats, whether they're mosquitoes, whether they're fleas. Either way, they make the people's lives very uncomfortable. I remember as a ranger guide pitching a tent in a field full of midges. It wasn't a pleasant experience, and that was just for one night. Pharaoh has a series of warnings, not just one. He has lots of opportunities to change his mind. In fact, he even appears to do so. If you haven't got your Bible open, open it at Exodus chapter 7 and 8. And if you look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 8, Pharaoh says, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go. God isn't just patient. He's willing to relent if we turn from our disobedience. If you look on at verse 13 of the same chapter, God removes the frogs when Pharaoh appears to change his mind. But God's judgment is just one side of the coin. God's judgment has a flip side. Because God's judgment is what secures the salvation of his people, Israel. God is a judge, but he's also a saviour. His purpose in the plagues was to rescue his people to fulfill the promises that he had made long ago to Abraham. Is that any different from the God we meet in the New Testament? God as a judge and a saviour is shown most clearly on the cross. Sometimes, I think as Christians, we lose sight of God's holiness, of his abhorrence of sin, In our home group recently, the Leader's Guide 
suggested that we looked at a sermon by the 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if Rachel's group did that, but it had these words. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. The imagery shocks our modern ears, doesn't it? The choice of words wouldn't be ours. But it is true that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But God in his mercy has saved us if only we turn to him and admit our need for salvation. It's only when we begin to approach God, not just as our Father, but also with awe and reverence, that we can truly appreciate his salvation and realize afresh what he's done for us in Christ. Only then can we truly echo the words of Graham Kendrick's hymn, We worship at your feet, where wrath and mercy meet, and a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us he was made sin. Oh, help me take it in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive. I worship, I worship the Lamb who was slain. But I think not only does this passage show us God's judgment, it also shows us his power. Moses and Aaron could produce their signs because of the power of God at work. And that power was greater than the power of the Egyptian magicians. If you look back at the story in chapter 7, you'll see that the magicians could change the Nile to blood. They could make frogs come up on the land. It's an interesting thought because actually they've possibly doubled the number of frogs and made the problem worse. What they can't do is get rid of the frogs. Neither can they copy the plague of the gnats. And at that point, they admit their defeat. Israel's God is more powerful. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 8, they admit that what they are seeing is the finger of God. And from here on in the story, they play no part. They're powerless. But actually, the story takes it a step further. Because God's not only more powerful than the magicians of Egypt, he's also more powerful than its gods. Egypt depended on the Nile. It worshipped it as a god. But the Lord can turn it to blood. Frogs were associated with the Egyptian goddess of childbirth, who was often depicted with the head of a frog we're told more than once that this is happening to show God's power and to show who he is. Look at chapter 7 and verse 17. It says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10 goes a step further. 
And Moses says, Pharaoh will know there is no one like the Lord our God. He is incomparable. Some people have attempted to explain the plagues away by suggesting that they were caused by natural phenomena. When the Nile floods, red silt is washed into it and it gives it a red appearance. If that happened, then frogs would be driven onto the land and mosquitoes would breed in flooded fields. But don't let's lose sight of the fact that these plagues show us the power of God. If we are looking at a natural occurrence, it's one over which God has total control. The Nile turns to blood exactly when Aaron strikes the river. It occurs in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. The frogs and the gnats appear precisely when Aaron stretches out his staff. Even the magicians refer to the finger of God being at work. They see it's not a natural occurrence. However we look at it, God is powerful. Either he has total control over creation, or he's the God of the miraculous, or perhaps a mixture of both. There is no one like him. But God is not just powerful. He is a God who, if we look at the other side of the coin, chooses to exercise that power through people. So far in our journey through Exodus, we've seen Moses' failings. He doubts his own ability to speak. He begs God to send someone else. He doubts that the people will believe him. He questions what God is doing. Yet God did know what he was doing all along. He knew Moses was the right man for the job, and this chapter proves it. Moses had his doubts, but if you look at these chapters, we see a different Moses. He does just as the Lord commanded him. If you look at chapter 7, verse 6, you'll see those words. They're there again in verse 10 of the same chapter. They're there in verse 20. Moses does what God asks and God works through him. Moses' trust in God is such that he even says to Pharaoh, when would you like the frogs to be removed? He is so completely certain that God will answer his prayer at exactly the right time and God does what Moses asked. Wow. Did you notice too that although earlier in Exodus... Moses protested that he has faltering lips and God graciously gives him Aaron to speak on his behalf. In these chapters, it isn't Aaron who does the talking, it's Moses. God knew that Moses had the ability to speak and these chapters prove it. Aaron plays a lesser role as the plagues progress. God knew what he was doing If you think about the later chapters of Exodus, Aaron leads the people astray by making a golden calf while Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai. God knew Aaron's weaknesses and he'd chosen the right man in the first place. I wonder if we're tempted sometimes to doubt God's call, 
to think that someone else can do something better than us when all along we're the person that God's equipped and wants to use. We might not be the finished article straight away. We might have doubts. I felt strongly called to do what I'm doing now. God confirmed it to me through the words of others, through an offer of voluntary redundancy that came out of the blue and for which I was accepted despite being on paper the person least likely to go through, through the preaching of Will and Alan. That doesn't mean I haven't had moments of doubt. Moments when I've sat upstairs in that balcony and looked down and thought, surely God, someone else can do this better than me. Times when I've been acutely aware of the work that God needs to do in my life to equip me. But if we are obedient to God and place ourselves in his hands, he can begin to transform us for the role he has for us. I don't know what God might be asking you to do. It might be something big. It might be something quite small. But if you're holding back, then you do no better than to look at the example of Moses. So what changes Moses from someone who questions God's call to someone God uses? Firstly, God is a God of power. But he works patiently with people to prepare them. Think about the stories in Exodus. God gives Moses plenty of signs of his presence. The burning bush, the staff that turns into a snake, the hand that's leprous when he puts it in his cloak and healed when he takes it out. God knew Moses' doubts and he works through him to overcome them. He teaches him to trust. The fact that there are so many plagues not only shows God's patience with the Egyptians, it gives plenty of opportunities for Moses to see God at work. He's being prepared for the task ahead of him, the difficult task of leading a grumbling, disbelieving people through the wilderness. If God calls us, he equips us. Secondly, I think we get a glimpse of an incredibly real relationship between God and Moses. A relationship that involves not just a one-way conversation, but a two-way. Last week, Nigel pointed out that in chapter 6, Moses isn't afraid to voice his doubts to God. He's honest with him. In chapter 7, we see he's got a confidence in prayer. He knows that because he's praying in line with God's will... The frogs will be removed when he asks. Above all, he listens to God. Six times in this passage, we find the words, the Lord said to Moses. God can't speak to us if we aren't listening to him. Moses has a close relationship with God. So much so that later in Exodus, we read the words, God speaks to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God can use Moses because he spends time in his presence, not just talking to him, but listening to him. 
So what we see in Exodus is a powerful God, but a God who isn't out there. He's not remote. We see a God who punishes sin, but we also see a God who reaches down to people to save them. We see a God who is powerful, but we also see a God who wants to use people to further his purposes. Are we ready to respond to his salvation, to have a relationship with him? Are we ready, like Moses, to trust him, to obey him, to place ourselves in his hands and allow him to use us? If we are, then in our weakness and our imperfection, God's power is available to us too. Let's go from here, remembering the words from Corinthians. God's power is made perfect in weakness.